the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that you, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. To weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to them, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we need your word. We need you to come and speak to dead hearts. We need you to make us live again by the power of your word. God, we thank you for the resurrection power. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. May that be evident this morning. May your word be proclaimed faithfully and truly in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please bear with me this morning with my voice. Uh, James, thank you for reading. Um, I was gone last week. I did my cousin's wedding in my hometown, and it was at the fairgrounds in a stock pavilion, and uh, the doors were open, and it was pouring rain, and I had no amplification, so I pretty much had to shout uh, right in their face so everyone could hear, Uh, and combination of that and taxing my voice this week and Cold's going around my house. Uh, I'm feeling it quite a bit, but I'm going to press on, and uh, that's what I'm going to do. So, all right. Well, it is that time of year again. Halloween decorations are going up, and drive around town, and you see all the stuff, and it feels like the object of some people is just to make things as, as scary and as creepy as possible. Uh, It's this interesting phenomenon, I think, because most of these decorations are some type of confrontation with death, or it's trying to be some glorification of death. And I think if you look around, if you look around the world, you see the interesting way that we deal with death in some places in the world. It's taboo to even talk about death. You you definitely don't joke about it, um, and you, you don't talk about it for sure. In America, uh, I think it's the opposite extreme, right? We, we make light of it. We Just looking at the dec- Halloween decorations, we might joke about it. We, we make decorations that glorify death, talk about zombie apocalypses, and you know, we kind of just laugh it off, right? But I think if we boil it all down, whether we're in the place where it's taboo to talk about it or the place where we just talk about it too much, I think these are just different ways of dealing with our greatest fears. Whether we try to ignore it, or whether we just make light of it. We all know, and Chris talked about it with the, with the children's message, that this is one of our greatest fears. And I think if you walk up to that house, so the person who's got you know, skeletons and cut off bloody heads and all those things, if you walk up and ask them truly how they feel about dying, I think their response probably will not be consistent with what they're trying to show on the outside. 
Also, if you ask most people what their greatest fears are, it's going to be something that's related to or something that could cause death. It's going to be something like spiders or snakes or bats or heights, right? It's all stuff that can harm us or that can ultimately kill us. And this fear of death is not some new phenomenon. It's not something that we just deal with in this day and age. You may have seen a story recently where archaeologists in Peru found the remains of 227 children believed to be part of a mass child sacrifice to appease the El Nino phenomenon. This probably happened somewhere between six and 800 years ago. And we'd look at that and we're like, how could somebody do something like that? But when you think about the superstition and the fear of death, that's what caused people to do something that was so unimaginable. And that's just one headline, right? That's just one story. Death is all over the news. And it's almost always stories that lead people to being more afraid. These stories that we see about death. As if we need more excuses to be unsettled or anxious about our lives in this world. Well, what does this all have to do with us sitting here today? What does 227 children sacrificed 800 years ago have to do with us? We spent the last five weeks in John's gospel looking at the I am statements. And a common theme in the I am statements has been Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders over his true identity, over who he really is. Even We've even seen them wanting to put Jesus to death. And the tension is really ramping up here. Chapter 11 is dead center in the gospel of John. I think the confrontation here reaches its climax. But this time it has a little bit of a different feel to it. That's because part of the confrontation here happens between Jesus and his friends. He's talking to the religious leaders before, and now he's talking to some of his best friends. Jesus comes alongside to comfort and to mourn with them, even in the midst of the confrontation over their unbelief. And then the greatest confrontation that we're going to see in this passage is with our deepest fear, and that is death. So the question for us this morning, if you are following along on the insert on the worship guide, there's a question there. How does Jesus confront our deepest fears? And we're going to see four ways as we go through this. But before we get to those ways that Jesus confronts our deepest fear, I want to point out the different fears in this passage. There are at least seven things in this passage that people are afraid of. First, Mary and Martha are afraid, in verse 3, they're afraid that Lazarus will die. Next, Jesus' disciples are afraid that the Jews will try to kill Jesus. That's in verse 8. The disciples are afraid that they're going to have to go and die with Jesus. Verse 10. Then Martha is afraid that she would have to wait until the last day to see Lazarus again. Verse 24. Martha and Mary both are afraid that something more could have been done. There's fear there. Something more could have been done, verses 21 and 32. Martha is afraid that it would stink when they opened the tomb, verse 39. And then there is this fear from the political leaders 
from the chief priests and the Pharisees, there is this fear that people will believe in Jesus and that there will be a political fallout. We see that not in the verses we read, but it's in verse 48 and then in chapter 12. So fear is everywhere in this passage, and Jesus is going to confront these fears head on. The question is, how? How is he going to confront our deepest fears? First, if you see there in your outline, Jesus points us to God's greater purposes. We start off in our story here. Jesus gets word from the sisters that Lazarus is ill, and he responds in verse 4. He says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Wait, illness for the glory of God? Purposeful, physical suffering so that the Son of God may be glorified through it? You better believe it. If you were with us this summer, during our summer conversation, our second summer conversation, when we looked at the book Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies, looking at the Psalms of Lament, Sandy, who was here with us, Sandy Tobias from Emmaus Road, she talked about how God used sickness in her life to humble her and to cause her to to depend more on him. I think for most of us, it's hard to believe when all around us we hear promises of healthy lives, right? Use this diet or try this new training program. Try this new supplement. It has these like magical-like qualities, And we're shocked when somebody who is relatively healthy gets sick. I think we're honestly shocked because we don't believe that God is sovereign and good. We've bought into the lie that we deserve health and happiness. And if God doesn't give it to us, then he's no longer good. We talked earlier about we're going to be showing the movie American Gospel. One of the most powerful stories that's throughout that movie is the story of Russell and Catherine Berger. Catherine, I'm not going to ruin it all for you, but Russell was an atheist. Catherine did not believe in God, um, had kind of grown up around Christians and things, but Russell was a hardcore atheist. Catherine was healthy, going to the gym, doing all these things, and then got this rare disease, and just things just kind of kept snowballing. And God used this and used the truth about what the gospel is and that it's not a promise of health and wealth and prosperity. He used this sickness and this suffering in their lives to draw both of them, him first actually, takes her atheist husband and through her suffering he starts seeking God, draws them out of darkness and brings them to himself. I think in our day and age of medical technology, we generally have this this illness does not lead to death mindset, right? Because, praise God, we can temporarily fix a lot of our problems. But what happens next in our text really upsets the apple cart. Jesus and his disciples intentionally stay two extra days in the place where they were, and in the meantime, Lazarus dies. Notice here that nobody tells Jesus that Lazarus was dead. Lazarus was dead. He knows it because he's God, right? And the disciples being their typical, not so quick to figure things out selves, they think that Lazarus is just asleep when Jesus says he is going to wake him up. 
And Jesus tells them plainly in verses 14 and 15, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So that you may believe. Does this sound like familiar language? It's the purpose of John's whole gospel. Right at the end, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may believe and have life in his name. And it's not just enough to intellectually assent to these things. Not just enough to say, I believe some truth. Shout out to Ursh. He had the quote of the week at our men's time. This week, we were, I told you guys I would work this into the message. We were talking about physical discipline, right? Talking about going to the gym, eating healthy, all these different things. And how this translates over into our spiritual lives. How does that discipline that we have in our, in our, with our physical bodies translate over into our spiritual lives? And Ursh said, it's not enough to just believe in the gym, right? Like, oh, okay, I believe the gym is there. Maybe even you, you pay your membership dues, but you don't ever do anything about it, right? It's not enough to just say, well, yeah, you know, the YMCA is downtown. Well, so what, right? It's not enough just to say that. There's no true believing if there's no life. There's no believing if there's no results that flow from it. And this passage is all about life. It's all about the results of believing. And we'll see that in our next paragraph in verses 17 to 27, which is really kind of the main part of this passage that we're going to focus on. How does Jesus confront our deepest fears? Jesus gives us the promise of eternal life. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus just let Lazarus die. He could have went earlier. No doubt he could have healed him if he had gotten there of whatever sickness he had. But instead he waited. He waited for a purpose. This is a really hard question to ask yourself. To really honestly ask yourself this question. Would you be okay with the Lord letting your brother die when he has it in his power to heal him? Or insert spouse, child, parent, best friend. Could you still say, yes, Lord, you are sovereign and good and I still believe in you and I want you to be glorified through this? This interaction between Jesus and the sisters is one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole New Testament. Something is buzzing really loud. Can you turn me down a little bit? Or what is it? James is going to fix it. All right. Between my voice and that, I don't think I'm going to be able to, like, handle it. Okay. But this interaction between Jesus and the sisters, like I said, I think is one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole New Testament. Jesus finally rolls into Bethany, but Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for four days. 
We're told that Martha and Mary are being comforted by many of the Jews who came to console and comfort them after Lazarus' death. This was an important part of the mourning process where groups of people would gather together and they would literally stay by their side. They wouldn't let the person who is mourning out of their sight. So Mary and Martha would have been continually surrounded by groups of people who were there to, to weep and to mourn with them. But when, Mary, or when Martha hears that Jesus has finally arrived, she books it. She goes after him. She's like, I don't care about these people who are supposed to be with me. I'm going to go find Jesus, right? She leaves these comforters, these earthly comforters, and goes and pours out her soul to the true comforter. And she's very honest about her doubts and her fears. But she is hopeful. Verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus tells her that Lazarus will rise again. And her response in verse 24 is, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's like saying, I trust you, Lord, but do I really have to wait All of us who have lost a loved one have felt this ache, haven't we? How long do I have to wait? And it's this crazy feeling, right, of like, I don't want to die, right? Like, I don't want to die, but like, I really want to be with them. And how can I continue to live in this world, live this life with this person not by my side anymore? And that... Those things all go through our minds in those moments. Grieving is hard. And Mary is right in the middle of it here. But she has come to the right person. One commentator says, The comfort of Jesus is the deed which he alone can perform and which alone comforts. For all comfort which leaves the power of death unbroken is incomplete and unsatisfying. Hence, true comfort can be given only by him who is himself the resurrection and the life. And this is the promise that Jesus gives to Martha in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here is our I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. And have you noticed that all of the I am statements in John are concerning the realities of life and death? I didn't really realize that until I was doing this and thinking about all the other ones. I am the bread of life. Eat me and live, right? If you don't eat the true bread from heaven, you're going to starve. You're going to starve to death spiritually. I am the light of the world. Walk in the light and life versus walk in darkness and die in your sin. I am the good shepherd and the door of the sheep. Jesus said, I protect you and I lay down my life for you so that the wolves won't kill you. In the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, but by me. Those who don't come to the Father by Jesus are going to die in their sins. And then I am the true vine. Abide in the vine 
and live, right? Stay connected to the vine, and that's where you have your life. If you don't abide in the vine, get cut off and thrown into the fire and burned. That's a pretty, that's a pretty harsh language and some harsh pictures there. But all of these I am statements are chiefly concerned with the issue of life and death. And we see it right here, smack dab in the middle of John, the resurrection and the life. And it's all about life and death. The other I am statements, they've been mostly figurative explanations of what we get when we get Jesus, right? We get our hunger filled. We get light for our path. The good shepherd guides us. We're connected to the vine. But here, in a unique way, Jesus is going to demonstrate I am the resurrection and the life. This is not going to just be some figurative statement to Martha and Mary that, hey, one day you're going to rise again. But before we get to that, let's let's look a little closer at his promise of resurrection hope that he gives to Martha. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, why does he say this? I don't think he's here. Um, I don't think he's comforting her about Lazarus. I don't think he's saying, um, whoever believes in me, though he die, speaking of Lazarus, yet shall he live. He's not talking about Lazarus. And why do I say that? It's because the very next question that he asks her, he says, Do you believe this? In other words, Martha, we can sit here and talk about when Lazarus will be raised, but Martha, I'm more concerned with your heart right now. Do you believe what I have just told you? Do you believe that this is true for you? That when I say, I am the resurrection and the life, and though you die, you shall live, I'm not talking about your brother, Martha. I'm talking to you. Do you believe this? And friends, when we are confronted with the death of a loved one or just the reality that we are going to die, we need to answer this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that though you will die, you will live if you believe in Jesus and if your hope and your trust and your faith are in him and him alone? Martha did. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And this is the greatest news for all mankind. But again, it's not just information. Jesus didn't just make a promise that Martha would have to wait until her own death to see evidence of. Next, we see Jesus confront our deepest fears because Jesus feels what we feel. Jesus gets angry at death here in verses 28 to 37. When it says that he is deeply moved here, this word, sometimes translated indignant, it's actually related, it's, the word is related to the word that's used to translate it when horses are snorting. Um, I don't know if you've ever been, in, been around an angry horse or maybe like a bull, an animal that's been snorting. It's not a, not a fun like, place to be, right? <clears throat> that's how mad Jesus is at death. He's indignant, right? He's greatly troubled. And then he weeps 
with the sisters and with the comforters. He enters into their pain. This isn't just some facade, right? Well, Jesus is God, so he has to like, right? He has to enter in and, and cry. This is real human weeping at the loss of a friend, of a dear friend. I love verse 37. It shows the, the woundedness of our cynical and our skeptical hearts. Some people had just said, see how he loved him? Verse 36, because he did. But others, and I think this would have been me, right? I would have been like, come on, this guy, right? I mean, he's just, he just opened the eyes of a blind man. He's doing all these miracles. And he can't even make his friend better. Get out of here. Who is this joker, right? The answer is yes. Of course he could have. Of course he could have raised Lazarus or healed him from his sickness. But he has a greater purpose. And the tears that are shed here are not wasted tears. The grave clothes that they wrapped him up in and all the work that went into that, it wasn't wasted. All the time, all the travel spent for these people to come and be with Martha and Mary and comfort them, it wasn't wasted Because Jesus needed to confront their deepest fears. He needed to get them to the point where he could press in and confront them. And he does that by demonstrating his power over death. He tells them to remove the stone. And despite Martha's protests about the smell, which Jesus kind of almost comically rebukes her with the reminder that she would see the glory of God, Like, Martha, I've been trying to tell you that I'm going to raise your brother from the dead and you're still concerned about the smell. Come on, Martha, right? I love verses 41 and 42. Why does Jesus pray here? Why does Jesus need to pray? He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. We've seen this several times over the past few weeks, haven't we? John chapter 5, 19 to 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. John chapter 8, 28 and 29. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus prays here to the Father because he does nothing on his own authority, but only what he sees the Father doing. He's not some crazy fraud miracle worker like the the skeptics and the cynics in verse 37 thought. He is the Son of God, the I Am whose prayers are heard by the Father because he and the Father are one. 
Do you see this? This is all over these I am statements. The authority and the power that Jesus has. But the dependence that he has on his father, it's unbelievable. I mean, if, if a Mormon comes to your door and wants to start arguing with you about the Trinity, take him here. I mean, it's crazy, right? Why does the Son of God need to pray here? It's because he's dependent on his father and he is one with his father and he does nothing apart from his father. So he prays. He prays so that those standing around him who heard him may believe that the Father sent him. And then Jesus performs what is undoubtedly the greatest miracle in his earthly ministry. He simply speaks and Lazarus lives. Lazarus, come out. And we get here a foretaste of future resurrections. First, and most importantly, this points to Jesus' own resurrection from the dead, that he would defeat death once and for all. We saw it earlier in our assurance of pardon, didn't we? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which points us to the second foretaste. It is the foretaste of our own resurrections on the last day. Jesus' resurrection secures our resurrection. Which means there is no longer any need to fear death. I love the conclusion to this chapter and then verses 9 through 11, excuse me, of chapter 12. Verses 48 and following here, or sorry, 45 and following. The chief priests and the Pharisees are freaking out. In verse 48 they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I'm not going to make any political statement here except to say, so what? You'd rather have your stinking land and your nation than have eternal life with Jesus? Come on. But their fear isn't just with Jesus. They also make a plan to kill Lazarus too, because many of the Jews were going away, and what? Believing in Jesus. I love this. Put yourself in Lazarus' shoes. What is there to be afraid of if you're Lazarus? Write this down and go listen to it when you get home. It's on YouTube. Ravi Zacharias, just simply called Lord. It's a sermon jam. It's about four minutes long. I'm going to read just from the beginning of this. This is what he opens up with. Have you ever wondered what you would do to frighten Lazarus after he'd been raised from the dead? What would you do to threaten him? Lazarus, I'm going to kill you? Caligula says, I'm going to kill you. He says, ha, ha, ha. And he says, stop, ha, ha, ha I'm going to kill you as I'm killing all the Christians. He doubles over in uncontrollable laughter, comes up for air and says, Caligula, haven't you heard? Death is dead. Death is dead. 
How do you frighten somebody who's already been there and knows the one who's going to let him out? And I wish I could do a Ravi Zacharias voice because it's amazing. But go listen to it and the rest of it is as good as the beginning is. But death is dead. How, what are you going to say to Lazarus, right? Like all these threats to kill Lazarus, are, they mean nothing. He's not afraid. And if you're a Christian here today, brothers and sisters, your hope and mine is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God who was crucified to pay the penalty for our sins with his precious blood and was raised again on the third day to defeat death once and for all. Death is dead. Jesus has conquered the grave and we will be raised with him. Have no fear. Let's pray. God, we need this reminder every day of our lives. Death is dead. It has been defeated. The grave has no power over us if we are in Christ. God, help us to remember that as we go about our lives. Help us as we face our stupid fears, the things we just let get to us, the things we worry about. Help us to be able to confront death, whether it's our own or the death of a loved one. And not just in a flippant way, but in a, in a way that says there is hope. There is hope beyond the grave. There can be joy in this life through suffering and pain and, and heartache because there is glory on the other end. God, help us to hope in you. Help us to truly trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.